welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Danny V, podcast host and children's author. I also do some work in publishing and acquisitions and publicity. As we hurdle towards one million plays, we'll continue to provide you with the conversational, vulnerable, honest and fun chats with your favourite authors across all genres. Check out our takeover episodes, usually released on a Friday, and our spin-offs released during the month. Thank you for being here, being part of the journey, and supporting Aussie Creatives. Hi everyone, welcome to Words and Nerds. I'm Alex Duke, Western Australian crime writer, and I'm taking over this episode today. Today we're speaking with a chap whose crime and thriller novels have won a litany of awards in the UK, the United States and Australia, amongst others, I'm sure. We're talking about the Barry Award, the Ned Kelly Award, the Edgar Award and the British Crime Writers Association Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award. That is quite a mouthful. Most listeners and readers are probably familiar with his blockbuster thrillers The Chain, set in Massachusetts, and The Island, set in Australia. However, today we are travelling back to the dreary streets of Belfast in 1990 with the latest in the Detective Sean Duffy series, The Detective Up Late. I am, of course, speaking with Adrian McKinty. Adrian, hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Great to have you. Adrian, it's, uh, it's been a few years since Sean Duffy's last appearance. Could you introduce him to our listeners, please? Well, yeah, and I'll also explain the gap. Um, so the last Duffy book came out in, in 2018. And, and then, as you say, I did a couple of standalones. And then just about a year ago, um, the fans of the Duffy series, a small but vocal group, um, had been pastoring me for about four years and uh, they said, you know, get off your arse and write another one. And I thought, you know, well, can I go back into that world? Because the world is 1980s Belfast. It's the, uh, for people who don't know, it's the era of what's euphemistically called the Troubles, but in fact, it was a sort of low-level civil war in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. And Belfast was just an apocalypse war zone um, of bombed up buildings and shops and army on the streets and terrorist attacks every day, riots every night, um, lots of rain and bad food, everybody smoking and drinking. So perfect territory for noir, hmm. um, which is the genre I grew up loving and didn't really appreciate that I was in living in a noir <laughs> uh, until I went away to England to go to uni and I thought, wow, so this is what the real world, what the other world is like. And then when I take friends back to Belfast, um, they were the ones that really brought home to me that this was a, an exceptional, strange, terrifying, but for me, very interesting place. Um, so I hadn't written one of those for about four years and I decided that I would jump back into the series again if I could. So I started listening to music of the era, I started reading books of the era, I started looking up newspaper articles of the era, and I found that when I wrote the first two or three pages that actually it was like putting on an old jumper or something and mm -hmm. I, I, I found that I could, I could write the book. That's um. It's interesting because, um, actually, like as you as you were just sort of saying about your, you know, when you went away to England to go to uni, I remember because 
because the, this new book's come out, I've actually revisited a couple of the old ones, which is a real treat. And one of the uh, sort of most um, memorable sort of few chapters is when Sean uh, actually pops over to Oxford, I think it is, uh, to follow a lead. And he's just struck by this, well, kind of what you kind of alluded to. He didn't doesn't seem to you know, realise how different the rest of the world, I mean, even the rest of just the UK is. Yeah, I mean, well, that that, that was entirely autobiographical. I, I was at Oxford and I was cycling my bicycle through the Dreaming Spires while there were beautiful girls um, with books of English poetry under their arms and going to these little pubs, Inspector Moore-style pubs, um, drinking pints of real ale and everybody is just relaxed and happy and studying. And, you know, I mean, Oxford is an artificial place, a strange artificial place. But in a way that was good because the contrast with Belfast in that time couldn't have been more surreal um, where everyone was hunkered down and wet and terrified and the army was on the streets. I mean, these were two entirely different universes separated by a one-hour plane flight. Mm. Something that I... A line... Well, I don't know if it's if you necessarily call it a line that you, you walk, but it's just a fact of the of the of the works like the, these books are really entertaining page turners they're they're really really great in that way but as you as you say the the setting or you know the real place of belfast is there, there's a lot of trauma in it and a lot of awful stuff has happened over a really long period of time how do you manage to approach a setting that is so well has that trauma and i imagine for a lot of the people you know still there and you know everything like that that's still it's still a you know it's it's there's still a lot of pain there how do you manage to so successfully um i guess i guess a word would be sort of maybe honor that i suppose while still making it an entertaining page turner well um that's a great question it really is because i think every Pretty much every film set in Northern Ireland has got it wrong. Hmm. Uh, um, every Troubles film has been, an, um, at least to my uh, eyes, an embarrassing disaster, which utterly failed to capture the tone of Belfast, just every single one of them. I mean, they're all horrible, horrible films um, made by directors from England or Republic of Ireland in the case of um, uh, Crying Game or, you know, or, or from America, and they all bring their outsider eyes to a place that really needs an insider to explain it um, because they always get it wrong. And, um, and the way I wanted to do it was to tell the truth about what it was like to be there in that time. And the truth was that traumatic, terrible things would happen and you would make a joke about it. And Belfast is one of the funniest cities on earth. Mm -hmm. And people have an incredibly dark, sargonic sense of humor. And a very, very cheeky sense of humor, much cheekier and darker than, you know, humor from the south of Ireland, uh, which to me is quite 
obvious and broad. Um, it's a very dark um, sense of humor. And that's the way we kids in school would cope with it. Um, and I was a school kid throughout the 80s. And um, like something terrible would happen. And the next day in the playground, there'd be nine jokes about it. Mm. And you think, who, who made these up? Where did these jokes come from? And they were like, we shites overnight <laughs> thinking that, that they're going to have to come up with a really good joke because there's going to be some other wee shites in the playground that have come up with a better joke. And every, you know, it was the darkness um, tempered by sarcastic, ironic humor. And that's what I tried to do in the books, to have that tone throughout. And, um, you know, and some people didn't believe it. I mean, some of the, mostly got pretty nice reviews, but some of the reviews said, oh, He's not taking it seriously enough. Uh, you know, this, these were terrible, terrible times. And I thought, yeah, that's the problem with all those bloody Troubles movies is they're so hyper serious and that's not what it was like at all. Uh, it's not, it was nothing like that. And um, they always play that terrible music that, um, Da 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 da, and it's oh, Jimmy's been taken by the Brits. What are we going to do? They also have some actor from like Dublin, and then they play that terrible music, and the whole thing stinks of inauthenticity. And uh, and 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 I decided that when I was going to write these books, um, people would either love them or, or hate them, but at least I would be um, proud of them because I told the truth. You know, it's it's it strikes me that the three, you know, obvious pieces of um, you know Northern Irish media, which um, I I really like, uh, is your work, Dairy Girls, and Kenneth Branagh's movie Belfast. They're all quite yeah, well, it's, they're it's, all quite different, but they're all made by people who grew up. We were children at the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, uh, Dairy Girls, you know, I thought there hadn't been a single film or TV show that captured none of them properly until I saw Dairy Girls. Mm. Now, the humor in Dairy Girls is a little bit broad, um, but I'm okay with that. You know, they're from Derry. They're they're not lucky enough to be from Belfast. And sure, we always, sure. from people from Belfast, always pity those poor sods up in windswept, miserable dairy. Mm. But, you know, um, they can contribute to the world in their own way, those, those, those dairy people. And, and Dairy Girls is actually a lot more accurate than anything else. Mm. Um, she grew up in the 90s, I grew up in the 80s, and she's captured the experience of dairy kids in the, growing up in the 90s. And I try to capture, well, I was a school kid in the 80s, but I try to capture the world of grown-ups in, in Northern Ireland in the 80s. And uh, Dairy Girls is far closer to um, reality than any any other piece of media. Mm. And you're right, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Um, Kenneth Branagh grew up there and lived there until like 71 or 72 or something. And again, it's a very affectionate portrait of a working class part of the city. Um, until the, you know the, the the troubles came, and uh, another reason I like that that uh, movie is there's a shot of my sister's pub in it. Mm, uh, so it's good good free advertising. Sean Duffy is um, he's a Catholic um, cop, but I wanted to put him on a Protestant street. Um, and actually, funnily enough, I make him come from Derry because I, I thought to myself, 
And when I was starting to write it, I thought, well, who's the character going to be? And I thought, well, I'm going to put him in the house where I was literally born and grew up um, with all my real neighbors, and uh, which is very, very Protestant working class street. Um, and I thought, well, what would annoy them most? What would cause the most friction? Um, and I thought, well, he's obviously going to be a cop. That's not going to be good. Uh, because a lot of the people on the street were gangsters, mm-hmm. um, living, you know, working in either just scams, stolen goods, petty drug dealing, stuff like that, or they were proper paramilitaries. So I'm making them a cop would definitely be lines of friction. And then I thought that's too easy. I've got to make them a Catholic cop because mm-hmm. they'll hate that. They'll absolutely hate that. It's a Catholic cop. And then I thought, I know, I'll make him a. This is, this, the book was writing itself at this stage. I thought I'll, I'll make them a bohemian middle class cop because they're all stolid working class people. So there'll be all these friction lines there. And then I thought I'll make them come from Derry because they'll hate that because they're all from Belfast. And so I thought, Adrian, you've got four lines of friction and conflict there. If you can't make a book out of this, you're just not trying, mate. So um, that's... that. <laughs> And like I said, it was one of those things. It's, it's actually a really stupid thing to say that it wrote itself, but it kind of did. You know, I um, I got I got so my 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 oh, let me explain my first sort of introduction to to the Duffy verse, as as we say. Um, back when I had disposable income, um, when I lived in Melbourne, I would uh, wander into independent bookshops, and um, I, I would buy books online uh but only books that i had heard of and my rule was when i walked into a bookshop i would always just pick a random one i wouldn't buy a book that i'd heard of before and so i picked up uh the cold cold ground the first the first um in the sean duffy series and i started flicking through it and what you just described became sort of really quite obvious to me whereas like there is so much conflict and tension just baked into the like nothing even has to happen and it's just all there um it's it's a pretty sort of genius setup to be to be honest with you well that, that that's the difference between that people don't understand or at least people that nag me on twitter um don't understand the difference between a noir and a thriller mm-hmm. and uh, and a thriller the you know the premise is 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 everything and every page has to turn a wheel of the plot or develop character there's there's really no nothing else that should be happening in a thriller um the pages should be turning you should either be developing character or developing story and and for 300 pages you should just be on the edge of your seat following the story but noirs are very very different for noirs whole chapters nothing can happen it's just about tone and mood and atmosphere. And the story is really secondary to getting all that stuff right. Character development, tone, mood, atmosphere. And I knew that, um, well, you obviously have to have a story to propel mm. the character through the book. But for me in the, the Duffy books, the, you know, the stories, stuff did happen and stuff does happen. But for me, the most fun was recapturing the world and, and, and world building um, and, and giving the music, the food, the smells, the tastes, the atmosphere, the rain. I really want you to feel immersed in like virtual reality in that, in that universe. 
Mm. Yeah, and the um, and I mean the the all the the details of it. It it certainly feels very authentic, and it's in that same. I'm just looking back at my bookshelf because when you sort of speak, stepping through that, what you're saying about noir. I mean the 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 really obvious thing that stands out to me is uh, comparison, uh, which you'll probably be flattered by, is Raymond Chandler, and how I can't like I I think I've read all these books at least twice probably and I can honestly not really remember what they're about like as in the plot but you have there's I have such a specific sense of the vibe of it and yeah. that's yeah that's the thing what you're, you're, what you're that's, that's, that's what you leave when you read a really good book you're left with oh I or maybe uh, sometimes I'll, I'll remember a specific line from mm. a book um that just burned into my brain but god i there's no way i can remember the plots or what happened or anything like that but the tone and the mood of a good book um should stay with you forever and um and if you write it properly and take care of the words and the emotions and uh, then it will and um so yeah i i i I think that's very important and um and i think i'm you know i think writers should try and err on the side of that martin on the memorable martin amos has this great collection of essays called the war against cliche Mm -hmm. and um and all the way through he talks about how you know a writer's job is 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 to avoid boring writing and cliche and give us something new and uh, an original and and and, I, and and a piece of their soul if you if you can and you know and i when i sort of do writing uh, workshops and stuff like that it's a good question to ask why is it you want to be a writer because the answer is i want to make money and be famous those are those are terrible terrible reasons <laughs> Um, because most writers don't make money or become famous. Um, a, a tiny minority does. There's much, much easier ways to make money. Mm. And there's much easier ways to make become famous. But if you want to write a story that captures something that you experienced or something that you know about and no one else knows about or a world that you have an insight into or a piece of your soul... And that those are good reasons to write mm. stories. Yeah, I often I often find nowadays, um, but with with novels, but also particularly with films, and, and I say this because I know you're a film buff as uh, as well. Is uh, I'd much rather watch something that takes a wild swing and doesn't necessarily work so well than just another. You know, like I, I mean, like say say take something like Marvel. I you know like I've liked a lot of Marvel movies, but you know i'd i'd rather watch something that takes a takes a big swing um one that comes to mind that we me and my wife watched recently that was pretty much epitomized this was um that movie uh what's it called uh men i believe i think it was made by alex garland and mm-hmm. yeah exactly. that was a great weird horror exactly movie. About. sorry say again i know you i know the exact film you're talking about yeah, I and, can't remember the book, but I know the one you mean. Yeah, and I came out of that thinking, you know what? That was a probably like a B minus C movie. It wasn't totally successful, but my god, it was weird and it took some wild swings, and it was a hell of a ride. So that can. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hmm. movies are so strange because um, 
the, so much of the conversation about films is um, the box office top 10. Mm. And it's, it, is a film successful because it made a lot of money? And, and the tyranny of that it, it just seems very oppressive to me. Um, and Because when you look back to classic films, um, some of them were, were successful and made money, and some of them were complete flops and disasters. Like I remember as a kid in, in the 80s watching home videos, I and mean, I was really lucky to grow up in the era of, of VHS and home videos. And I remember watching two films back to back. Uh, by the same director. And I think we had a, a, a hipster uh, video rental dude who shelved the films by a director. Uh, uh, um, or no, by actor, that's right. I, the, so I had this, I had two Roy Scheider films. And the two films were um, Jaws and Sorcerer um, in the Roy Scheider section of the video store. I remember watching those films back to back um, one Saturday afternoon, and it was about, I guess it was about seven or eight years after Jaws had come out. So it was no longer in, nobody was talking about it anymore, or, you know, it was still in the culture. But I remember just loving Jaws and thought it was so great. And um, and then I watched Sorcerer, um, William Freakin's Sorcerer, and I loved that just as much. I thought, my God, this is fantastic. I thought, these are two of the greatest films I'd ever seen. I thought they were absolutely brilliant. And I didn't know as a kid that Jaws was a monumental success and had made tons of money and everyone loved it and it was just great. And Sorcerer was an enormous disaster and had lost the, the, the studio tons of money, had almost ended William Friedkin's career. And, and in some ways it, it, it did because he never got the chance to helm anything with a gigantic budget ever again. And um and I, like i had no idea just so freed from thinking about box office success or failure um you could just appreciate a film on its own merits and um and you know, so that's why i mean i, I saw like a few weeks ago i saw indiana jones five mm -hmm. yep. and i was watching it in the um uh aura of this being a complete disaster. And uh, everybody said, this is this is a disaster. It's ended the Indiana Jones fran franchise on a, on a disaster. It's lost huge amounts of money. It's a box office bomb. And, go. and I went in expecting this utter mess, this uh, fiasco. And I watched it and thought, this is perfectly fine. Yeah, I thought <laughs> it was pretty good. It's perfectly fine. What are they talking about? I, th I thought it was going to be incompetently directed, like horrible lines, and I just go, "This, this is fine. I don't, I don't get it." And it's because the, all the talk was that it was an utter flop and disaster. And uh, I think if people were freed from thinking about box office numbers or, or sales numbers, then you could just appreciate things on their own right. And it's also okay. Like I think it's. I mean that that is a perfect example. Um, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time arguing about movies like that, and Star Wars is a really good example as well, where it's either amazing and the best thing ever, or it's the worst thing ever. Sometimes I just think, you know, it's okay to be like, to watch a movie like that and just think like, yeah, that was pretty good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was all right. And uh, and uh, I'm thinking about Wild Swings, that last 20 minutes of Indiana Jones. Yeah, that, that, true. That was, 
that was that was a, a bold, wild swing for the fences. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you can't you can't fault that. Um, so yeah, I, I I think so. It would be nice not to have the tyranny of the of the bestseller or the the box office. Just like I say, finding a book in a uh, an Airbnb or an old hotel or something that's some of the best finds I've ever gotten in my life or on a train or a tram somebody's left their left a book there and you just pick it up and start reading it. it's a book you would never have read in a million years uh, like it happened to me just the other day I was in um, somewhere in New York and uh, I was catching a really early morning subway and someone had left the book of the film let the right one in oh yeah and and I'd never even knew the, that it was based on a book. The Swedish vampire uh, movie. Yeah, the Swedish vampire movie. I, I had no idea it was based on a book. Uh, maybe I should have known, but I did not know. So I started reading it. Um, by the time I got to my uh, destination, I was like 40 pages in. I thought, this is great. This is really great. And in no other universe, I would ever have read that book um, or heard about it or thought about it or anything. And um, and then I went back and watched the, after I finished the book, I went back and watched the movie and I go, oh my God, I can see what they did, what they left out. And it gave me a whole new insight into the film. Mm. I've had this um, over my, speaking of finding, finding books, for some reason, this has happened in a hostel in San Francisco, happened on the street in London and i think somewhere else maybe at another hostel somewhere in the us i found stephen king novels just there yeah and it was the green mile under the dome and i think misery and you know the green mile and misery are really good under the dome is is maybe not as good but still all right and there's just something because it's stephen king i don't know there's just something really creepy about these stephen king novels sort of just appearing <laughs> around me yeah, yeah, like yeah. apparitions <laughs> Look, speaking of um, uh, how people receive media um, and uh, Northern Ireland, one of the, um, you know, really fantastic uh, non-fiction book that's come out within the last five years, I suppose, would be Patrick Radden Keefe's Say Nothing. And a lot of that is about yeah. how people in Northern Ireland, um, you know, dis despite, as you alluded to, the humour people can have about it, there's also a reluctance to um, to really delve too much into it, um, as I understand it. So with that in mind, how is um, how are the Sean Duffy books received in Northern Ireland and Belfast? Um, generally, people have been pretty nice about them. Um, um, you know, it's always a little bit surprising because um, you know you think, oh well, uh, well I I, I, do, I do get occasionally one starred um, from either militant Protestants or militant Catholics. The militant Protestants say that I'm obviously an IRA agent, <laughs> and this is my you know my the, my story is um, you know anti-Protestant, anti-police, and then the militant. Catholics will say, oh, God, this guy's a, a stooge of the British crown and the police forces. And, and the, the one-star attacks on Malibu, which haven't been very much, to be honest, um, have been fairly equally balanced, which pleases me mm -hmm. uh, because, you, you know, you're an equal opportunity offender. And But, but also, I have to say, when I interviewed a lot of the players before I wrote book one, and there's a lot of 
scary men, mostly men, um, who I talked to, and they, I mean, it's so weird. They couldn't have been more charming and more willing to talk. And you know, and some of the, some of them I've used real names in the book, and some of the names I had to, or my lawyers asked me to um, censor or bleep or. The, they're bleeped in the audio book. And, yeah, and that's an interesting book. device. Um, in the advanced reader copy, I read, and, you know, or just did the in the novel, the um, you know, asterisk, using asterisks to um, star out uh, out names is um, that's it. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a cool device. It, it actually el- like elevates it. I think. Well, I mean, the thing is, I had changed a lot of names to fake names, mm-hmm. and then about book three, I I I got fed up doing it just. You know, after getting all these lawyers' letters, mm-hmm. and um, and I said to the, I said to the publishers, look, this is ridiculous. Either we use the real name and deal with the consequences, or you censor it so everybody knows it's been censored, mm-hmm. uh, not by me, um, but by your lawyers. And 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 so they started doing that, and they said, well, what we do about the audiobooks? And I said, well, I guess you'll have the narrator read the real name and then bleep it out. Um, so from about book three onwards, I started doing that and I felt more comfortable about that um, because that also felt more truthful. Um, I actually used the real name, um, but because the lawyers didn't like it, it was censored out. Um, so I was being completely true to the to the situation and the territory. But I also was a little bit metatextual because I wanted the readers to know what was happening. Mm. Yeah, no, I like that, and the, and actually, it's it's interesting you you know use that use that word because I, I noticed in um the new book, at times it is actually quite meta, in a lot of ways, um even in sort of you know like uh, literary ways where I think at one point um Duffy refers to another character being his uh, Chekhov's gun. Yeah, and, I appreciate yeah, I, I, I remember that line. And there was another point where I was describing some scene, and I just got so fed up with it because it seems such a, a writerly thing that I was doing. And I, I think I said something like, "Well, look, you can imagine it. I, why should I be doing all the work around here?" And yeah. Uh, yeah. and and I thought, "Yes, that that's fine." Let them just figure it out. You know, don't, you don't have to unpack everything for the reader. The reader's smart. You know, if they've got this far in your book and it's your typical type of reader, they're pretty smart. And you don't have to explain every goddamn single thing to them. They'll figure it out. I mean, that's the, my, the, the, a really good example is, um, uh, I read two of those books, Dan Brown's books. Mm-hmm. And um, the actual story is, is, is about three-fifths of the book. And then there's about two-fifths of the book where Dan Brown explains everything. And he just explains every single concept that he's come up with and come across in the research. And he said, so a, uh, you know, a, a train was going across England a train is a type of locomotive that was developed in 1830s um, England by George Stevenson. Uh, and you just go, what the fuck? Why are you doing this, Dan? We, we, there's no need for this. If there's, we just want to get on with the story. 
And but obviously his readers don't mind that, um, or they're simpletons. I I I, I don't get it. Uh, but um, I I don't feel the author's job is to explain everything. If you have if you're having a problem, there's a device called Google. Um, yeah, and you can use. That. Yeah, and look, thank you for um, using the name of an author that I can edit around to make you say things that you didn't necessarily say. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, do you think that a good crime novel has to be, to a degree, sort of anti-authority? Um, that's a, another great question. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of slavish to authority crime novels. Um, I can't really think of any. Um, like a well-made murder mystery where they talk about how great the cops are. I can't think. I don't think I've read a lot of those. Um, I don't read a lot of cozies. I imagine cozies are like that in some in some degree. Um, <laughs> yeah, cozies could be a little more punk. <laughs> I don't read a lot of those. There's that Fugazi song. Um, I don't know if you remember Fugazi, that American punk band from the '80s, and they have this song called "You'd Make a Great Cop." And they just scream it into a microphone for two minutes. You'd make a great cop. You'd make a great cop. And he's screaming about a former band member. And that's the ultimate insult. You'd make a great cop um, because you're pro-authority. You know, you're a narc. You, um, you know, and, and, I, and I think, I wonder, are there a lot of books like that where they just have, they salute authority and um I, I don't know that's not the sort of stuff i would read but i imagine there yeah. are some cozies um, yeah there, there, probably, there probably are some um there's I, I i i there's probably some sort of military fiction that's a bit like that as well but i think the reason i ask is because you know we as we mentioned earlier the sort of lines of conflict in the duffy series with him being a catholic cop in the um uh, you see, uh, living on a Protestant street, all this sort of thing. Um, th those are, you know, built into the fabric of the narrative. And I think that's, you know, most crime novels, the reason that we, that detective characters work so well is they're usually a little bit maverick and, um, you know, it's they can be in conflict with the the, the system of police around them, which, you know is usually quite flawed in a lot of ways as it is in real life. Um, and that, and it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a good sort of, um, narrative device, I suppose, uh, for. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really can be, but also I think you've got a, um, you've got this workplace comedy as well, where you've got the police is, I mean, if you've done any research in the police, it's, it's so bureaucratic and they're all basically civil servants and, you know, they've got all the tensions of an office environment. So you've got this workplace comedy, um, but they've got guns mm -hmm. and people are trying to kill them. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're all, they're all, they're all armed with sidearms and, you know, they can shoot one of their coworkers anytime they want. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so that, that's a, that's a little bit of a free song um, as, as well there. So you, you do have all those dynamics which is why police novels can be such um, fun. Yeah, and it's a... It, and, and, and again, a, 
another great feature of um, the Duffy novels is um, Sean's relationship with um, Detective uh, Sergeant John McCrabbin, who is... Um, I, I don't suppose you can necessarily say he's the opposite to Duffy, but he's he's certainly in conflict, yet they, they do have a um, an interesting um, friendship, I'd say. Yeah, you, you, you always want that... Um, you always want a dynamic that you can have characters bounce off and that the dialogue is natural and fun to write and fun to read. And and I thought when you've got this bohemian Catholic from from Derry who's into rock music and, you know, and is very kind of blasé about drugs and really law enforcement in a lot of ways. And then you've got this stolid, working class, Protestant, proper, Bible-loving uh, guy from Balamina. And I thought, well, that's comedy gold right there. Mm. You know, that's that's Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy. You just have those two people. But you, you, you've got to give your straight man a little bit of a sense of humor, and you've got to give your humorist a bit more of a straight man and they're all pulling together in the same team so you as as the writing goes on you find out that there's layers to both of them and they're similar in ways they never realized and um that can be fun to develop as well that kind of dynamic you know what what speaking of films what film just uh, occurred to me as you were talking about that dynamic i don't know never really thought about it this way but um you pretty much just described men in black starring will smith and tommy lee jones i think <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, and it's funny what they, um, if you've ever seen, um, oh God, I'm blanking on the director of Men in Black. It was a famous cinematographer, Barry Levinson. Uh, no, no, not Barry Levinson. Barry. Is it Sonnen? Sonnenberg? Sonnenfeld? But I remember seeing a. Um, uh, interview he giving about when he was directing Tom Lee Jones and um, he said that they did the very first take of the very first shot on Men in Black and um, Will Smith was over the top and crazy and then Tommy Lee Jones had the same energy he was over the top and <laughs> was mugging for the camera and trying to be funny and um, the director said to him Tommy the whole the way this is going to be funny is if you're incredibly serious and low-key throughout the whole thing and that'll be funny the contrast will be funny and you'll both have different reactions to everything and you'll you'll react differently to one another and he was absolutely right of course mm. uh, if if Tommy Lee Jones had been mugging all the way through the movie it would have been a total disaster um, so yes, it, it, it's good to have that kind of contrast in those characters and they have different reactions to everything, but it also has to be a, a authentic and organic, um, you know? So I think, I think he, 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 the characters kind of take over the writing themselves and they tell you what's going to happen next. Yeah. I, I imagine, um, you, you know, with, um, particularly with, uh, Duffy and McCrabbin, uh, once you sort of put them together and they, they just start playing off each other well to to repeat a phrase you mentioned earlier it sort of starts to write itself a little bit I'm sure yeah yeah um, 
This, uh, there's also a, a uh, fantastic audio book narrated by a, a chap called uh, Gerald Doyle, I believe. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, the audio book narration is... Um, um, the way it usually works is that I write the book and then um, uh, usually the editor will have some suggestions. Uh, I don't think this one was very heavily edited at all. And then the cop editor would have some suggestions and then I'll go to Doyle and then I'll have about a 12 hour phone call with Doyle um, or like two six hour phone calls where he will um, go through the pronunciations and the words and he'll ask me about what certain scenes mean. And to me, this is a, a really great part of the process because he'll really interrogate things and say, well, what are you trying to do there? What emotion are you trying to convey? You know, what I, and and I, I'm so relieved I don't read these books because I know that I would just have read them. And whereas he's trying to give emotion and uh, an emotional through line for the characters and arc the characters through his performance all the way through. Mm -hmm. So that's another layer that I really have enjoyed um, doing is, is um, having Doyle do the, the audio books and then that conversation that we have after every book um, where we talk for like a day or sometimes two days um, on, on, you know, how to approach the, the audio version. I've, I've really enjoyed that process. Yeah, that's that's interesting because obviously, obviously, um, you know, novel writing is a, is typically a pretty solitary exercise. But you're you're sort of really describing more of a collaborative a collaborative process, aren't you? Yeah, it it really is, and you're right. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely solitary. I mean, you 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 sometimes don't get any feedback. Um, and and my my wife normally reads the books, but for the last two or three books she's been teaching full-time at, at, at university and she really hasn't had the time and so for the last two or three books I've done the first feedback I've gotten is from the editor's letter and um like so you'll get like a, a two-page letter from the editor or something and that's your only feedback on the entire book and you know you'll you'll do their comments, and then the copy editor's letter is is even worse because it's just all the things you got wrong, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because the copy editor will seize on your bad grammar, mm. and uh, there's never any praise from the copy editor. It's just like on page, you know, you you mixed up were were and were um, <laughs> on page five, so you get this terrible copy editor's letter, and then and that's the first time you can really talk to someone in, about the book itself is when you you talk to the audiobook narrator because they have, will have read the entire book and have understood it, um, but are just looking to you to get the emotional through lines. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a, for me anyway, that's a really important bit of feedback. Are you, a, are you an outliner or do you uh, sort of make it up as you go along? Um, most, I do have broad outlines. Um, well, except for two of the Duffy books. Um, I have really broad outlines and then um, sort of figure out what's going to happen within the chapter. And then you're fairly free within the chapter to just make up your own thing. Um, but I did write two locked room mysteries in the Duffy series. Um, uh, in the morning, I'll be gone and rain dogs. And um, you can't really do any free form writing in a locked room mystery. You have to have that outlined like a like a like a bomb disposal expert um, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it's it, a finely tuned machine. Everything has to be planned and layered out, and um, you know, because a lot of mystery has a lot of rules to it. I mean, you have to give the reader all the information slightly before the detective gets the information, so they can figure it out before the detective can figure it out. And you can't cheat. You can't withhold information. You can't make the clues too obvious or everyone will get it. it you know, it's it's like making a watch. It, it, it's a really precision piece. Of, you've got to have the right number of red herrings, but not too many. You've also got to tell an agreeable story, you know, with all, all this. So that, those two books had to be meticulously planned hmm. uh, down, down, down to all the beats within every chapter. Hmm. Yeah, different. Yeah, I can see it's a it's a different it's it's an interesting approach um, because as as we sort of uh, got at earlier uh, with uh, with the, with noir and how it is you know the, the, in a lot of cases the story can be somewhat arbitrary. It's more about the vibe of the thing. That's obviously quite a different um, different approach. Um, but before we before we move on to my last question, I do just want to highlight a fun fact. I'm not sure if you know this, Adrian, but um, about Gerald Doyle because I had a looked at his Wikipedia page. Oh, yes. I don't know this. Oh well, strap yourself in. You'll like this. So as we know, uh, the detective up late is set in 1990. In 1990, Gerald Doyle, who audiobook uh, uh, reader, but also sometimes actor. He starred in 12 episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, that's it. What was his character? Um, uh, I think he... I, look, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he might have been a doctor. So, I don't know, maybe oh. someone had amnesia or something. I don't know. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, the amnesia, that seems like a bold and the beautiful move. Mm. Uh, yeah, bold, it's, it, it's a bold move and it's a beautiful move. Um, yes, exactly. So, look, as I said, this book is set in 1990, but the uh, and and it also makes um, you know uh, much reference to the the idea of Duffy's last case. But of course, the Good Friday Agreement was not signed until 1998, meaning there's uh, much more more trouble uh, to to cover potentially. Will we see Sean Duffy again? Um, I, at the moment, I have no answer to that. Um, I know that I, I, I am working on a standalone. Mm -hmm. um, my last two books were standalones, and my next one will be a standalone. And um, I can't think that far ahead. Um, um, when the standalone's out, I don't know, maybe this time next year or um, something like that, and I've done the book tour and all that jazz is over with, then I'll have a think about what's next. But I'm not I'm not James Patterson planning 24 books ahead, um, which will cover him for the next six weeks or so. <laughs> uh, sure. But that's that that's that's not me. I I, I I can only focus on one project at a time and I'm sort of all my post-it notes around the house and all my energy is 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 in the standalone. And then when that's done, I will take a month off to reboot, read other people's stuff. And that's how, or watch a lot of movies. That's basically how I reboot. And, um, and then I'll decide what's next. Look, that's fair enough. Um, but everyone, you, you would have heard earlier, Adrian mentioned that um, 
people have been hassling him on social media and all that sort of stuff about about him getting back to, to Sean Duffy uh, while he's doing his um, standalone. So if we want more Sean Duffy books, then I guess we just have to cyber-bully him into to writing more. So, um, yes, that might be the only way to do it. Yeah, okay. That's, um, that's noted. Okay, cool. I don't know if this, people will be able to see behind you, but I've been admiring your... Um, um, book collection all the way through. I um, I like the Elroy. Mm. The Elroy's up there, and underneath that, um, there seems to be a science fiction yep. shelf, which has got some hardcore books in it, including Dark Matter, which is one of my favorite books. Yeah, um, from a couple. Yeah, years. I believe he's got a new one out actually. Yeah, um, he does, and um, some of my favorite books. That, and you've got some classic sci-fi next to that one. Um, yeah, I actually just read reread Ubik. Uh, the other day, the Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah. Have you read all all of PKD's stuff? Um, not. I, I don't think all of it. He he had a, as as I understand yeah, it, well, very prolific. Um, yeah, but you can do it from about sixty six or sixty seven onwards because, well, famously in sixty two to sixty four, he wrote twelve books, in um, fourteen months with the help of methamphetamines. Yeah. Uh, and, and not sleeping um, but from about 67 68 onwards he just basically slowed down and did a book like every year or every 18 months or something and they're really good the, the Philip K. Dick novels of the 70s yeah, okay. um, are great one, one thing yeah. as, as well we're talking about what's on my bookshelf I have to fly the flag for um, Australian crime writer Gary Disher who is one Oh yeah, I've, I've met I met Gary many times. God, he's a he's a class act, good. and every time he puts out a book, he is. it's just good stuff. He's a great guy, and um, and a lot of them were in my old stomping ground of St Kilda. Um, I always like walking around St Kilda and um, being in Gary's world, or Gary being in my world, um, as it sometimes was. Um, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Melbourne is a good city for crime fiction, I think. Oh um, yeah. It's a good, you know, because it's uh, Sydney. If you ask me, Sydney's a little bit too glamorous. Um, yeah. Whereas Melbourne is slightly less glamour, glamorous, and uh, so that it's it's a, it's it's rainier. So um, it's it's a better city, especially this time of year, mm. August, September, October. Um, it's 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 a good city for crime fiction. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And just to uh, make sure that I rep uh, Western Australia, um, a good uh, a good um, uh, crime fiction writer who uh, writes out of uh, Fremantle is um, Alan Carter, who's um, has his uh, detective series in there, starting with um, Prime Cut, uh, which is I, I think actually that one's set in um, Hopetown on the isolated south coast um sort of small yeah. small town drama but a lot of his stuff is set in Fremantle, and that's um that's very good stuff too um yeah yeah alan carter i don't know i don't know his work but i will look him up yeah um, he's 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 got good stuff yeah but alan carter was the pilot um in space 1989 the short-lived um um, Jerry Anderson TV series um, from 1977 to 1979 and he was Australian um, Alan Carter was the the pilot of the um, of the of the of the vehicles their chief pilot so that's quite interesting mm. Fremantle though I have to say I'm intrigued by this because I've been to Fremantle a few times 
and it's such a nice place. Mm. It, it, it's really, really nice. It's got a beautiful beach. There's the the buildings are lovely. They've got that brewery. What's that brewery called? Little Creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few more there. That gigantic brew pub, and uh, so I'd be I'd be quite intrigued to see the sunny, lovely Fremantle, and um, what you can do for for crime fiction in that place. That 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 intrigues me. There's actually um there's actually a, another book. Uh, God, what is it called? Um, set in Fremantle. Um, Shore Leave, um, mm-hmm. which is set in I believe 1989. Um, when a Frio was not quite so nice, a little bit more grungy, but also when um, the American Navy used to, uh, right. to dock in Fremantle and then would disgorge American sailors into the into you the see city. That? that that sounds like a great setting. Yeah. So it was a bit like Manila or Subic Bay, that kind of vibe, that kind of world. Okay. Cool. All right, um, Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the book is called The Detective Up Late. It's the seventh, I should say, in the Sean Duffy series. It's, it's bloody great stuff, and um, everyone should go out and read it. Hey, thanks a lot, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, 